is it time to stick your head above the parapet? You're never too old to be bold. Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Well, it's episode 100. I can still remember the scary moment of putting the first episode out into the world back in 2019. Creating these podcasts has been a fantastic experience and I've had the privilege of meeting so many amazing, inspiring guests along the way. People from all around the world starting disruptive businesses, researching to help us get clear on the issues campaigning for a better, fairer and more regenerative world so we can have enough for all of us and future generations. I've met so many people who, as Paul Hawkin might say, are healing the future, not stealing it. I want to thank you as well for listening and providing feedback. I love hearing from people who enjoy the stories of circular progress or want to suggest fascinating guests for future episodes. Today's episode is going to be a bit different, and it's something I was encouraged to do by Peter Desmond, who's been a great mentor and supporter over the last five years. Peter wanted me to share a bit of my backstory. How did I come to be helping businesses get clear about the circular economy, and specifically to focus in on how going circular creates deeper levels of value for all stakeholders? by delivering profitable, affordable products and services to customers. We'll come back to that in a minute. At the end of 2022, Peter moved on from Rethink Global to focus on local circular and sustainability initiatives and to build on the success of the recent World Circular Economy Forum in Rwanda. You might know that Peter co-founded the African Circular Economy Network, ASEN, after his master's degree project on mobile phones in Africa. He's now finalising the major project of building a multi-country team at ASEN to accelerate the take-up of circular, fair and regenerative solutions across Africa. Peter has a wide range of business experience and his career included projects aimed at making business more inclusive and fair, including the concept of stakeholder value. In other words, business should be accountable to wider society, rather than existing purely to make money for its shareholders. I'm incredibly grateful for Peter's work, guidance and wise words over the years, and I wish him all the best in the many important initiatives he's involved with. So, back to this episode. I was feeling really uncomfortable talking about my story, and then fate stepped in to lend a hand. Someone I'm a big fan of, Sarah Archer, invited me to be a guest for her very popular Speaking Club podcast. Sarah is a speaking and marketing coach, writer, comedian, performer and ex-human resources director. 
This mix means she's uniquely qualified to teach us how to create content that makes our audience stop, engage and fall in love with our message. Sarah's on a mission to show authors, experts, coaches and aspiring change makers how to create a signature talk that uses stories in a way that aligns to your values and without losing your personality. I'm trying to make more impact with my talks and Sarah's been helping me out with that. In this episode, you'll hear Sarah's interview with me, asking what sparked my interest, why I decided to call time on my corporate career and go all in with helping people shift towards the beautiful, fair, regenerative future that we know is possible. Coming up in the next episode, 101, we'll dig into why businesses should aim to lead on sustainability, not just follow others, why the circular economy is more than just vintage clothes and recycling, and we'll unpick some of the myths around sustainability. Let's jump into the interview. Catherine, the first thing I want to know is what started you on your circular economy journey? Yeah, well, I guess it's kind of how far back do I want to go? And I won't give you all the all the boring and gory details on this. But thinking back about my interest in sustainability, which kind of started with food after a dodgy bottle of water on holiday in the 1980s, which then turned into a food intolerance that went on for ages. And at that point in time in the 80s, food intolerance just wasn't, you know, an accepted thing in the medical profession. Um, And that kind of made me realise, in retrospect, that experts often don't want to look at information that's outside their normal frame of reference. And also that I could find out enough to be dangerous, as one of my bosses used to say, you know, kind of getting enough information to be dangerous on a topic. So I kind of set off on my own path. And I can't remember how I came um, up on this this guy, but there was somebody on uh, Harley Street in, in London who was looking into food intolerance. And I kind of, you know, read about this and thought, well, that fits exactly. So that you know, kind of got me on the path to, but, but but as part of the food intolerance thing, it meant I had to read all the ingredients labels, and I was really shocked to see how how many things were in simple simple you know even muesli bars and stuff, um, and how many I'd never heard of, and that seemed to be some kind of complicated additive or chemical. So that really got me thinking about what was in food, and then um, quite a long time afterwards. Um, in 2003, I was really into mountain biking. I was in a, uh, a kind of um, orienteering type race one day, waiting to cross a road and got hit by a car um, oh and kind of ended up uh, in intensive care for 10 days and in hospital for five weeks with multiple injuries and lots of complications and a quite difficult path to recovery. And my one big goal was to get back to the level of mountain biking that I'd been at before. That was kind of the driving factor because it wasn't just the sport. It was, you know, how I spent most of my social life and holidays and, and everything else. So the experiences of that dealing with uh, an MRSA infection, lots of complicated breaks um, and even trying to adapt the bike um, to deal with, you know, now I couldn't bend my one of my legs more than 90 degrees and you need 110 degrees of bend to pedal. <laughs> so all these kind of things um, set me off on paths trying to work out how I was going to solve this particular problem. But the same thing happened that lots of experts didn't want to look outside their existing frame of reference. 
But this time it was easier to find out, you know, on the internet. Now there was the internet, so it made it a lot easier to find out what else I could do and to kind of go a bit off piste. So I guess that that kind of um, embedded this feeling that, you know, people like to, to stick to the to the kind of path that they know. Um, and subconsciously, I must have adopted that in my work. So that kind of, um, again, got me thinking about about um, diet and um I think I was just starting to hear lots more about sustainability issues. And then it sort of dawned on me that in the work I was doing at DHL Supply Chain, we had lots of, you know, big companies as clients, big electrical retailers, supermarkets, breweries, chemical companies, you know, automotive, everything. And all I was doing at work in helping them develop better supply chain strategies or get more efficient at their operations was I was just helping them get better at selling more stuff that we didn't need that was all wrecking the planet. So in effect, while I was banging on about, you know, sustainability and organic food and all the rest of it, I was kind of contributing to the problem. So um, I was thinking, well, some, you know, there must be a way past this. There must be a way that business can do things in a better way and still make a profit. So that kind of set me off on a, another research quest of, you know, what was out there. Uh, I did loads and loads of research because I was terrified about um, standing up in front of somebody who was going to pull the rug from under me with a really clever question or, you know, climate deniers and all the rest of it. Um, so loads and loads of research got really depressed. And the only way forward seemed to be that we were all just going to have to have less. And, you know, who was going to buy into that? But along the way, I was coming across new bits of of terminology and and um, kind of intellectual and and scientific jargon, and one of those terms was the circular economy. And when I started trying to look into that, which was quite early on in the in the sort of discourse, I came across the first book published by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, aimed at school kids, called Sense and Sustainability by Ken Webster and Craig Johnson. And when I read that. It was just like, you know, the, the lights went on and suddenly I could see a way forward, a way that we could just do things differently, meaning that people could have nice things and things that we need and everybody could have a better life, but we didn't have to wreck the planet at the same time. Um, and all this was possible just by doing things differently and yet still being profitable and having a resilient business. So that was kind of you know, in, in a very long, lap, rambling way, how it all started. I love that. And I love the title of that book. How clever is that? Sense mm. of sustainability. I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think people have this impression that in order to 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 do you know, good, good by the environment, we have to go around in hair shirts, fl- you know, flailing ourselves on the back. But that, you know, that isn't saleable to most people. And I love the fact that you are, are charting a path that shows that it is possible to, you know, yes, to, you have to do things differently, but it is possible to have nice things and, you know, look after ourselves via the planet for the longer term. That's brilliant. So so you've you discovered this this alternative path for organisations you were still working for a company at that point. So what happened next? What made you go all in? Because now today you are a circular economy expert. Um, and what has happened since? Yeah, well, lots happened since. But but just to push back, and uh, this is 
um, another. Well, it's, it could be the same boss who, who had the you know know enough to be dangerous phrase, um, but he used to banish the word expert, and he always said you know an expert's ex is has been, and spurts a drip drip under pressure. So I prefer <laughs> specialist in the circular economy. Um, so yeah, I once once I, I'd got all this info and I'd already pitched for a talk to a senior um, business group like a supply chain group that I was part of and I'd done a talk to them and it went down quite well and I started then identifying all the circular economy things that we could be doing as DHL for our clients and I was getting some traction but it was just all too slow and you know people wanted to focus on business as usual and tweaking this that and the other and so I was getting really frustrated and probably becoming um, a bit too vocal with that. And then we we were having several reorganisations and uh, in one, redundancy was on the table. Um, but I chickened out and kind of found myself another job in, in what was called the global products team, which was all about finding things that we could develop. So I was kind of thinking I can use this to really promote the circular economy. Um, but my boss just was not interested and I was banging my head against a brick wall. And I also had this, you know, as soon as I'd accepted the job and turned down the redundancy, I was kind of kicking myself. It was one of those things that, you know, you wimped out, Catherine should have gone for this. So I was just thinking, well, there's bound to be another one in the next year or so. You know, I'm not going without, <laughs> without, a, now I've had the offer of redundancy. So yeah, so the next, next Thing that came up I thought right this is it I'm jumping in with both feet um, and sort of had this naive sense that you know people must be wanting to know how to do this um, and so that's that's the path that I started off on just trying to help businesses adopt more circular approaches and to understand what it's all about what the circular economy isn't which is you know just recycling and new materials and really try to get to the heart of how the circular economy can unlock a new way forward for business. Um, cool. And just just for a time frame, when was it? When did you go all in? When did you say that's it? I'm jumping in. What? Where, where were we? In, yeah. So in- the end the end of 2013. So I did my first big talk in 2011, um, and then at the end of 2013, um, you know, that's when I jumped all in and, and started um, the business. Um, you know, and, and came up with a name of Rethink. Um, so uh, because I think it is all about just rethinking the business strategy, reimagining the way forward. And I didn't want to tie myself to the circular economy in case something better came along, um, mm. which I think it now is in terms of regenerative strategies. You know, we need to go further than circular. Um, and also I wanted to be able to bring in other elements like ethics and fairness and you know, different business models uh, around employee ownership and cooperatives and that kind of thing. So I kind of wanted to leave that open. I mean, things, I would imagine things have changed just certainly from what I've seen that now people are asking and now people are interested. But where are we? 2013, we're what, nine nine years on? No, almost 10 Mm. years on. And... uh, we should have really been starting back when in that 2013 because we're, we're we're sort of reaching crisis point and i think you described the challenge that we face 
as a super wicked problem. And I wondered if you could explain what you mean by that. Mm, sure. Well, first of all, it's not my invented term. I wish it was, but it's not. Wicked problems were first defined um, back in the 70s by two, United, uh, two American scholars, Rittle and Weber. And they sort of brought together problems that have a number of characteristics, including that each problem is unique. The problem's a symptom of other problems, so that makes it really complicated. There's no exhaustive list of potential solutions. You know, you can go on trying to find things that partially solve it, and they don't stop, so you'll never properly solve the problem. And then a super wicked problem is all of that, plus it's really urgent. So when we stop to think about our current problems and I characterise that as being on a fragile planet with finite and depleted resources, nature that's being destroyed by us at a frightening rate, and people everywhere under all sorts of pressure. That seems to exactly fit that definition of a super wicked problem. Absolutely. And I feel like this is like when you used to think about the universe. I don't know if you ever did this. So I used to like think about the universe, and I'd be there and I'd be like, oh my God, this is too much, too much, switch off, switch off and, you know, just move on. And I think that's where a lot of people feel uh, about this problem at the moment. You know, you you start to to see to see it and then it, it just feels so complicated and it feels like you as an individual and perhaps even a business, you know, business, it, it just feels like you can't make a, a dent in this. And so we sort of go back to putting our heads in the sand or ignoring it. And I think that's one of the big challenges to overcome because as soon as you go down, you know, we talked about this before, as soon as you go down the sort of fear route, you know, and all of this bubbles up, people just just throw up their hands and run away. How, how have you been sort of able to overcome or been thinking about overcoming that? Mm. I think you're absolutely right. And that's something that comes up for, for me. Um, I was talking to my husband this morning on our, our walk. Something came up and um, he he used the, you know, well, we're all, he swore, but essentially, you know, we're all doomed <laughs> anyway. Um, and my kind of pushback on that was that more and more people are doing things like me, trying to make a difference in your own life uh, at work. And, you know, by talking about it. So I think there are, there's a growing number of people who want to do the right thing. There's also the sort of power of small actions, you know, voting with the money in your pocket by choosing to spend money with companies that are doing the right thing. Choosing to not spend on something where actually we're just being shamed into thinking that, you know, if we don't have this, we're not we're not cool or we're not doing the right thing. We saw that with the pandemic, didn't we, where suddenly, you know, you weren't being a good parent if you weren't disinfecting everything to within an inch of its life. Um, even though, you know, a bit of vinegar and <laughs> bicarb would do the same thing. So all this kind of shaming or symbols of success, you know, where we're, we're told that if we don't have this, then we're not going to look successful. So opting out of that and deciding to spend your money in more purposeful ways sends really good signals back to the businesses 
both to the businesses that are doing better things and to the businesses that are losing customers. So I think that's incredibly important. And then there's also the cognitive dissonance element to this. And what I found personally is that just just as with that first decision to go all in on this, but with all the tiny decisions that I've made to stop buying whatever, um, to recycle, you know, find a, find a way to recycle something... Every time I've done that, there's a realization that actually that was making not doing it was making me really uncomfortable and making me feel dishonest with myself. And once you do it, you start to feel better and you then get energized to do the next thing and to talk about it. And really at the heart of this, it's about caring, isn't it? Caring for the things, caring about what we buy, caring for things when we've got them and caring for nature that we utterly depend on for everything. And once you're doing that, as people who are in caring professions find, it's really fulfilling. And even though you know there's lots more you could be doing, as long as you're kind of moving forward in baby steps, that helps you feel much more positive about your place in the world, is is my kind of take on it. Yeah, and I want to talk a bit more about this in a little bit. Um, so to sort of examine some of these myths and stuff about, you know, about um, sustainability, regeneration and all of that good stuff. But I want to touch on the one idea. So you focus very much on working with businesses and you've got to make a case that is compelling to businesses. So if you had to sum up in one idea what you need businesses to understand, what would that be? How would you do that? First of all, it can't. this can't be solved. This is a wicked problem. It can't be solved by doing a bit less bad or by recycling stuff. It needs system-scale change where we're reimagining business strategies, you know, from, from the very heart of the, of the business so that we're thinking about healing the future instead of stealing it. And I see circular and regenerative approaches as the key tools to help businesses move forward on that by creating deeper levels of value for all the stakeholders, customers, employees, investors, the communities around your sites, everybody. By shrinking the footprint of the business, the waste and pollution and, and emissions, and by and through that becoming more resilient, sustainable and profitable. So it's kind of about thinking, you know, how can I make products that last that have a life of their own and how can i find customers who are going to become my super fans so i've got customers for life instead of this pipeline where we're trying to just sell more and you know push more more through it every year and i i think it the, the case is compelling isn't it because this isn't just about doing good for others it's about making this business last because you know you and I often talk about Kodak in in relation to this issue because you know it it does sound you know from a business perspective all those things you said sound like oh that sounds like a, a lot of work you know so that I can tick the green box but it isn't just about ticking the green box is it what it's it's about other stuff as well. Can you elaborate on that? What, yeah. Why should they? What's the compelling argument? So it's all about becoming future fit. 
And I think in the course of trying to write the next book, which is going to help businesses make the business case, I've tried to kind of sum up where I think we are. And I think over the last decade or so, the landscape has changed utterly. And so in the last century, it seemed like, you know, a rolling landscape with endless new horizons to go and find new markets with customers to sell to and new resources to exploit. And everything seemed to have infinite possibilities. But now that landscape's changed. You know, it's 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 full of rocks and crevices. And as soon as you start to look into any resource, I've just been doing a blog about lithium for electric cars. You know, that's not only is that essential if we want to have all electric cars, but it's essential for all sorts of other products as well, like glass and lubricants. And so everybody's kind of competing for a resource that isn't, in short supply, but the consequences of mining it are horrific for the, for people and the environment. So you know we kind of have this. Well, we'll just get more lithium, but the but the consequences are awful. So every resource that you think about using up has consequences, whether that's destroying habitats, you know. And we need more nature. We need nature to be drawing down carbon. We need nature to be cleaning up after us, as well as providing us with food and fiber. So everything we're doing kind of has all the you know it's it's the wicked problem again so it's it's about thinking of the future and thinking that the it seems to me the only way forward is that we have to stop pushing stuff through this pipeline and trying to pump ever more resources energy water in at the beginning and ever more waste and pollution out at every stage of the process as well as at the end of life so the only way we'll do that is by making products last longer and everybody then starts thinking, oh, well, that's hard. But in the last five years or so, I've helped my parents replace electrical items in their kitchen, a fridge, a cooker, a hob that they put in in the 1970s. And these weren't top end things. These were just everyday bog standard brands. And yet they've lasted for 40 years. We haven't we haven't had a kind of, you know, a brain failure that stopped us designing things to last companies have just decided to follow a planned obsolescence route or make everything fashionable you know apparently sofas are now a fashion item that you're supposed to replace every couple of years you know it's it's just all about this myth that selling more is what makes businesses successful but we can't keep selling more when we're on a finite planet with you know finite resources and where we're we're busy undermining the very foundations of society you know we're using up resources so they're no longer available and we're wrecking the very thing that we depend on we're destroying nature which is what we utterly depend on for clean air fresh water that's safe to drink and of course healthy food with nutrients and on top of that, we need nature to help us lock up all that carbon and methane that we're putting into the atmosphere. So we utterly depend on nature, and yet we're just, you know, destroying it without thinking. So so thinking about the future and thinking, okay, let's imagine we are on this, you know, imagine you're on a little island, then how are you going to make sure that you don't pollute that island and, you know, use up all the resources, chop down all the trees and end up with nothing. It's that kind of thinking. It's not it's not difficult thinking. It's just the scale of the scale of change. And, you know, 
we've talked about Kodak and that was that was a great example of a company that could see the change coming you know they'd even employed the guy who invented the digital camera so they were they had first mover advantage but what they tried to do was use digital to keep people printing photos because film and printing was the cash cow so they couldn't get away from this idea that they had to keep people printing photos and yet they'd fail to understand what customers really wanted all along, which was to be able to share their stories. People weren't interested in having a bit of paper with a photograph on it. They wanted to, you know, show it to people and they could show it to people online on social media. And so, you know, now that's so obvious, but Kodak were kind of locked into this. We can't let, we can't let go. It's this, it's this kind of, um, what's the phrase for it? The, the, um, it's a fallacy, it's a sunk cost fallacy. You know, that we've got this thing, we can't let that go. So their misguided strategy was all about, you know, let's bundle it together. Whereas Fuji, the number two, who also depended heavily on film business and and printing, they saw the future much more clearly and realised that this was going to be really difficult. So they embarked on a massive transformation project and used all their knowledge in how to make these chemicals to find new markets for those chemicals and become much more diverse and through that more resilient. And so Kodak ended up in the space of a decade going from market leader to filing for bankruptcy, whereas Fuji increased their revenue by 50%. Wow. And I think there's two sort of things that come up for me around this. One is going back to that frame of reference thing. It's like people get fixated on one sort of resource path so like the lithium now oh it's got to be lithium or oil it's got to be oil in and and then there's sort of let's let's just literally go all in on that instead of looking at alternatives and it's almost like if you've got a business um i don't this is just me simple terms for me you want to diversify your income streams to protect your business and make it sustainable in the long term. But we also need to do that at the front end in terms of the resources that we use to make those products. But we don't seem to do that. We just mm. sort of get fixated on one thing. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, around status. Now, when I, I find when you look at problems and pain of customers and stuff like that, when you peel back the layers of a problem it always comes down to status and you know my parents uh, we talked about your parents my parents uh, have lumped in all of the environment uh, and vegan and all of this stuff together in a sort of package of they they like using that awful term woke but uh, so they've put it all together in that but and, you know, they're quite modern thinking. They want the new thing instead of like we've got to, you know, and I think the change is happening. We want to make it sexy to have things longer term rather than to keep chopping and changing. But it's it's systemic. We're conditioned to want new to keep up with the Joneses. Do you think that it can change in time? Do, do you think that the change is happening? I think it is, but I think it's. Is, is it fast enough? That's the question. Yeah, I guess I guess at the moment it's not fast enough, but these things can change overnight, can't they? If we think about 
smoking, uh, drink driving, things like that, that have been socially acceptable in the past and then, you know, become not so, that things can can change quite quite quickly. And there are, you know, there are lots of things that, that governments could be doing to encourage that. Um, thinking about drink driving, there was an example where um, in America they were finding it really hard to get people to be the nominated driver who'd stay sober. And so they, they just encouraged um, Friends and another sitcom um, to just build it into the scripts. And within a few months, things had changed because suddenly it was normalised and, and people could see role models doing that. And so suddenly it became cool. So there's lots of ways. And I'm really encouraged by some of the stories I'm hearing about youngsters. Um, just this morning, again, on the, on the same walk, um, we were talking about the, um, the daughter of some uh, local friends we've got um, who um, only buys stuff off Vinted doesn't buy anything new and neither do most of her friends so I think this is really interesting because this is youngsters deciding deciding that their identity is their own identity it's unique they're going to be more imaginative creative and I think that's probably much more rewarding than just copying what some influencers warn that you can you can buy and then when it comes through the door you realize actually it's it's shoddily made it's awful materials and once you've washed it washed it once it looks like a, like a rag so people are starting to discover that there's a different way um and you know one of the things i'd love to see is marketing literacy courses you know we've got carbon literacy now helping people understand you know where carbon comes from and how we get rid of it so marketing literacy where people understand how they're being manipulated and can choose to then step back and think well I'm not buying into that into this into this myth that unless I'm disinfecting everything within an inch of its life you know I'm not being a good parent love that <laughs> that is my one win actually I've got my mum on vinted but uh, <laughs> she's she's buying loads though we still she's still doing loads of shopping that she doesn't need but she at least she's doing it on vintage so those those a little win um so, so the next stage then is to get her to be re reselling it on vintage or donating it and yeah yeah absolutely absolutely one thing that i'm interested in i think you know, people will be particularly interested in from the speaking perspective is have you switched up your content or delivery style over the course of the you know ten years that you well actually it's longer than that since two thousand eleven talking about this stuff to meet people more where they are and bring them on board. Yeah, now I try and include more stories of disruptors. So I'm not just talking about the circular economy as one set of challenges, but trying to help businesses understand that we've been through these kind of systemic changes before when within a few years like with digital everything's been completely transformed and just as with digital the circular economy is going to affect every part of your business back office front office everything and unless you start to really think about that then you know you're not going to you're going to be left behind and i think digital is recent enough in most people's memories for them to kind of think, oh yeah, here are the things that we did wrong. Here are the here's the place where we didn't spend enough time thinking about the implications. So, you know, hopefully people have got long enough memories to do that. Although I was kind of um, listening to the thing about the um, the Silicon Valley Bank, 
um, in the news this week that, you know, kind of uh, suddenly got into difficulties. And Gillian Tett, who's, um, who thinks she's the Financial Times American um, editor now, but she's got an anthropology background and she's really interesting in, in, interesting in, in terms of the, the sort of um, social context of this. And she was saying that now there are too many people who can't remember high interest rates I certainly can. You know, I got caught out with 16% mortgage rates and, and the house price crash, crash that followed that. But people had just, you know, lost sight of the fact that things could change and so weren't looking at the signals and hadn't thought about what they would do, what are the what-ifs. And so, that you know, there's just so many areas where businesses just get fixed on this is the way that we've always done it. This is the way that we're all going to do it. And yet the evidence is everywhere that that, that doesn't work. You know, things have to change. There's always a disruption. Absolutely. And how important is speaking as a vehicle to get your message out there and to to build that sort of consultancy practice? Because, I mean, obviously this is your business, but you're absolutely passionate about it. And I know that you shy away from being called an expert, but I've never come across anyone who's so well read, like you, you know, so much and you're so, but you're, you know, you always learning. Like it's, it's a, mm. it's a journey for you. Like you never, I know you, you should, you know, perhaps you say I'm not an expert because there's so much more to know, but it doesn't, you know, I think you are, um, whether you embrace that or not. Um, but how important is speaking to, to you uh, as a vehicle to build up, you know, the, the practice and getting into companies to make those changes and actually making people aware of them? Yeah, it's it's very important. And it's the thing I'm most focused on getting better at because it feels like the number one way to help people engage with the topic to begin with so that you can open up windows of possibilities for people and help businesses understand the systemic reasons why business as usual is a race to the bottom. But here are the things that you could be doing differently instead. And there's a quote I've started using recently from um, a guy called Alvin Toffler, who says that, you know, the, the literates of the future are going to be the ones who can learn, unlearn and relearn. And that's kind of, you know, everything's changing so fast around us that that's what we have to be doing all the time. You know, so I'm open to I'm open to other alternatives. Maybe maybe the circular economy. Well, I know the circular economy doesn't go far enough. You can do things that are circular, but cause what's called rebound, where we end up with more consumption because suddenly circulars made something cheaper or more acceptable. Um, so there is no perfect solution, but there are lots of things we can be doing to make every business more future fit and profitable, and to you know to be. Um, loved by customers, investors, employees and suppliers. I love that. And thank you for sharing so many real, like there's practical strategies in there for people to sort of to grab hold of and starting points that you've shared. Um, and I, I will sort of give you the opportunity to, you know, um, if add anything, if you think that we've missed something out, but I'd like to switch into our standard questions. Um, now, I know. Now, I know that you listen to, to the show, so you've got a heads up on this. But let's start with the first question. Um, 
what you know what does speaking mean to you what has it done for you i guess it's given me a route in to lots of businesses community organizations policy makers and so on to try and help them think differently about the future yeah and and you've spoken already for some big organizations like United Nations you've, you've yeah I do do some talks for the United Nations they have a, a an open um, circular economy course every year um, so I do a couple of lectures on that uh, alongside two of my um, former podcast guests um, Brian Bauer from Al Gramo um, and Sandra Goldmark the author of a really interesting book called Fixation about why we love objects and and what causes us to get things repaired um so yeah so that so i really enjoy doing doing that every year and then um you know keynotes for businesses and conferences and so on yeah and and there is another form of speaking you do which is your pot your own podcast mm. um how has that been for you because that i mean people dismissed that speaking you know at the, at the end of the day that is speaking and getting your message out there how has that been really interesting I think the number one thing that it's done for me is engage me with all these disruptive businesses because that's what I try and focus on is, you know, small businesses and organisations that are doing circular things. And that's where I'm seeing the the kind of signs of change. So it really helps keep me optimistic and it helps me understand how those circular strategies are creating these viable, profitable businesses that are really going places. Excellent. Okay, next question then. What's the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Well, there were quite a few candidates for this, but I think the one that opened my eyes, obviously there's, you know, Sense of Sustainability by Ken Webster and and Craig Johnson that I mentioned earlier, Um, but a book called Mistakes Were Made, but not, not by me, all about cognitive dissonance. And I read that probably five or six years ago and it really changed my outlook on everything. And they look at various fields of expertise from the law to the medical profession to researchers and they look at how it's possible for people to be influenced by the wrong thing um, or to just get bound up in a myth or a you know an identity and not be able to see past that despite all the evidence to the contrary. But it shows how easy it is. And they kind of describe a pyramid. There's a there's a, an experiment they cite where uh, students sitting an exam are given the opportunity to cheat, and they've just been given a question that wasn't on the syllabus, so nobody could have prepared for this question. And then they're given the opportunity to cheat. And they interview them all afterwards to find out, you know, what, what they're now thinking. And the ones who chose to cheat justify it and sort of say, you know, I need need the results for my job. Everybody's going to be cheating, you know, all these justifications. And the ones who chose not to cheat have kind of gone the other way and that anybody who cheats should be thrown off the course and, you know, it's absolutely immoral and so on. And they kind of describe this process as being like, you know, when you make the decision, you're at the top of a pyramid, but very quickly you're at the base of the pyramid, miles away from the from the person who took the opposite route and we can you know once you start to think about that you can see it in so many areas of discourse particularly now with you know identity politics and 
um, you know, the way we talked about woke <laughs> and the, the woke culture earlier on and, you know, kind of people getting on one side or the other and then not being able to see any other point of view. And I think this is one of the big issues around our, um, you know, way of way of living and way of being these days. And that's so, yeah. interesting. I know it's something that I talked briefly about with Anne Yanza, who you uh, introduced me to. So thank you for that. And I know that you picked up on, but it ties back to that book then that this mistakes are made. It's interesting. There's some correlation between that, their position, their sort of um, idea and what Anne was saying. Mm, yeah. And there are other, other good books on the Scout Mindset is another one, which has got uh, a set of tools to help you be more of a scout um, than a kind of, you know, she she contrasts scout and soldier mindset. So soldiers just kind of, you know, it's right or wrong, immediate conclusion, which is what our brain wants to do. Our brain doesn't like uncertainty, but trying to have more of a scout mindset. And, you know, people who celebrate being wrong because it means, you know, I've learned something. So just different ways of thinking. Lovely. Brilliant. OK, what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Um, I guess the frequent one from my husband that you're never too old to be bold and to just kind of, you know, go for things. I love that. And you embody that. I I, I always enjoy speaking with you because I always learn something because you're always learning something. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, uh, last question. If you could have one mentor and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? A comedian, a UK comedian called Mark Steele, uh, who on Radio 4 does Mark Steele Goes to Town. And the reason I'd like to have him as a mentor is he's funny in a very empathetic way. So when he does this Goes to Town, he you know turns up at a, uh, a random town in the UK, looks into the history and culture and idiosyncrasies of that town. And then people in the audience are from that town and he kind of gently teases them about some of these things. But he does it in a way that everybody joins in. Um, and so it's it's kind of holding people to account. It's shining a light on things that they might be embarrassed about or, you know, that that just look weird. But he does it in a way that's that's very inclusive and, and kind of encouraging. So. Um, to have some advice from Mark Steele about how to do that with business audiences on a on a really difficult subject, I think would be would be great. He is great. He is great. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing all of that uh, great advice for businesses and individuals about how we can move forward and make a little mark in this wicked problem. And is there anything else that you feel that you need to share or say uh, in order to call this interview complete? Just to say thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Thanks for doing your podcast, which I've just learned so much from. And I know I've got so much more to learn from. It's all about, you know, learning, unlearning and relearning. So unlearning all that corporate stuff. Um, so, yeah, thanks for doing that and for all the work that you're doing to help people get their messages out there and, you know, uh, do do good stuff in the world. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. You inspire me every time. As I say, every time I talk to you, Catherine, you inspire me. Uh, and I'm really pleased to help you be able to get that message uh, out there and make the change that uh, we all need to uh, uh, jump onto. So thank you. So um, 
thank you so much for your time and uh, everything else and um, have a great rest of your week. Thanks, Sarah, and thanks for some brilliant questions. As I mentioned, in the next episode, episode 101, we'll cover my three circular strategies and how they're better for people, planet and profit. We'll dig into why businesses should aim to lead on sustainability, not just follow others. And we'll unpick some of the myths around sustainability. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our awesome guest interviewer this week, Sarah Archer, for being so generous with her time. And thanks also to Emma Hopkins for making the episode possible. As always, thank you for listening and letting me know what you think. It means a lot. You can find out more about Sarah Archer, her brilliant coaching programmes and the Speaking Club podcast and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities, with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice, and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. <music>